Well, well, good evening. Good evening and welcome. Wonderful to see you. So many people here tonight to begin this uh, very pertinent, I think, and thought-provoking series that we've entitled Clash of Convictions, Challenging Issues of Our Time. But just wonderful to see so many here and from many different churches. So a warm welcome to each one of you. My name's Simon Ford, one of the pastors here at, uh, at Mount Pleasant. Now over these uh, four Wednesday evenings during the course of May, we're going to be looking at four substantial and challenging life issues and hearing from a range of different speakers, which I think will be really helpful. You'll find it very thought-provoking. And the topics that we've chosen to explore, identity, sexuality, euthanasia, abortion, are burning issues of our time. And I think shout out, really scream out to us to be carefully examined, to be carefully thought through uh, together in community. And uh, they're big issues. They affect not only our, our lives, a massive weighty impact on our own lives, but also the lives, the life of the nation, and probably they're a lot more weighty, I think, than we realise. But our views and our convictions on these big issues, you know, we discover that they're formed and they're shaped sort of out of how we view the world, you know, our kind of terms of reference, our kind of big picture view of the world, you know, what we call world views. And it's quite, we all have this dominant lens, I think, through which we, we see ourselves, we see others, you know, we see the world and, of course, how we actually view God. And in our culture, in the culture we live in, there are many different stories and meta-narratives or worldviews that seek to kind of make sense of human life. And our intent over these four weeks is to present both the secular and the Christian worldviews on these challenging life issues so that we can begin to look at and make sure that we do look at the rationale and the underlying thinking behind these worldviews to let the views, the worldviews speak for themselves and for us together to determine what's a more beautiful and what's a more excellent way of living at our lives, what's a more attractive way. So we're just trusting that these views will kind of present to you something that really encourages you to think more deeply. Of course, convictions to us are really important, but convictions alone can kind of look a bit ugly. We need compassion, don't we? So when we're kind of looking at some of these big issues of life, we need to bring together both conviction and compassion as we look through, as we talk through these key issues. But we're beginning tonight with what I think is an underpinning subject, the subject of identity, you know, who we are and, and what defines us and one of the major shapers in our culture that determine who we are today. And it's a great privilege for us tonight, I think, to have Rory Shiner with us, Dr Rory Shiner, uh, to help us sort of think through this subject well. And uh, Rory's just an incredible gift to the body of Christ um, and uh, it's just, I've been wanting to get him to come along for some time and so we've finally done it, so it's fantastic. But Rory's the senior pastor at Providence Church here in Perth. He was born in Albany, raised in Albany, Western Australia. He studied English and anthropology at university which equipped him very well to work in cafes and kebab shops. So he thought, goodness me, uh, I better do some more study. So he went on and studied theology at Moore College in Sydney and his ministry now includes pastoring and 
church planting and local and international student ministry and more recently evangelism among those in the city of Perth, those that work in the city uh, and or live in the city, the inner city of Perth. Wari completed a PhD on Australian uh, religious history and uh, as I mentioned, his senior pastor role there at uh, Providence Church involves him with the strategic oversight of the church. There are two campuses that Providence have, one in the city and one out in Midland. And uh, Rory's main focus, though, is teaching and preaching in the city campus. And Rory is married uh, to Susan and they have four boys. So why don't we just extend a very warm welcome to Rory Shiner. It's just fantastic to have you with us, Rory. Thanks so much. It is uh, great to be with you tonight. I'm very uh, pleased to be able to share with you and to think through this, I think, really important issue and, as uh, Simon uh, has said, a really underpinning issue that I think uh, will shape, I guess, the next four weeks and shapes a lot of uh, the way we think about what we do and who we are and how we are in the world. So thank you very much for your hospitality and, uh, and I'm really glad to have this time with you. I want to start with an opening exercise. I'm going to give you a minute and like a literal minute and uh, I want you to take that minute to write down, if you've got a pen, you could type it into your phone or you could just list it off in your head. But in, a, in 60 seconds, uh, to think of all the identity markers that go into who you are. All the, all the, the, uh, the things that would finish the sentence, I am a, finish that sentence, uh, if you give us all your identity markers, you've got a minute uh, to do that and your time starts now. All the ways in which you could finish the sentence, I am a. All of this does count toward your final assessment. So, <laughs> And we're done. Uh, I did this experiment uh, this week on a plane. I was also watching a movie at the same time. I'm not sure how revealing this is, uh, but here's what I got, uh, where I got to in a, uh, in a minute. Here we go. That's what I got. I am a husband, father, pastor, Australian, writer, brother, son, cousin, Christian, board member, teacher, church, coach, church member, reader and friend. Like I say, I'm not sure that they're particularly revealing or whatever. Maybe a psychologist could do something with that and ask questions about why I chose those particular things. And my guess is that my list is a bit like your list where uh, some of them are pretty functional and pretty down the end of just kind of matter of fact descriptions. And then along the spectrum, some of the identity markers on that list would, would go pretty close to the core of who we are, of how we think about our place in the world and would be to a large degree shapers of how we tell the story of ourselves and the story of where we fit in the world and what we do and who we are and how we make our decisions. And so I want to think with you tonight about the topic for identity. I think there's three good reasons for thinking about that uh, together. The first, uh, the question of identity is a really fraught question in our society and in our culture. Uh, for many of us, I think in, in the churches, uh, it, it, it is a fraught question for us that some of these questions are deep questions, questions of our ethnic identity, questions about our sexuality, questions about our status and our achievements at work or our status as married or, or single or divorced uh, or widowers, uh, of where we fit. These identity markers are deeply held 
and sometimes deeply problematic questions for us in the church uh, who follow the Lord Jesus. So it's a question for us in the church. It's a question of anxiety and confusion in our wider culture. There's such a thing as identity politics, a form of politics and a form of contesting power which breaks with the traditional divisions between country and city or between you know, working class and middle class and breaks us down into these more kind of uh, more specific ethnic groups and uh, sexuality identity groups and religious groups and so on uh, in which we compete for resources and space in the public realm. You see that in the controversy around Israel Folau and the competing identities uh, that are at, uh, at, at play in that, um, in that debate. You see it in the gender debate, kind of obviously. Uh, should your identity be the identity that was given to you by your biological sex or should your identity be the one that you choose for yourself socially as you present yourself to the world? And you see this even in the way we identify with our faith. I've noticed in recent years people often uh, switch quite subtly from saying I am a Christian to I identify as a Christian or they identify as a Christian. That's a subtle shift in our language. And thirdly, I think this matters. It matters for us in the church because it's an issue for us. It matters in our society because it's an issue for our society. And it matters thirdly because it's an issue for our discipleship. So, so if you're someone who is following the Lord Jesus and wanting to orient your life around him, the question of how you identify, how you understand your identity is a huge and sometimes nine-tenths of the uh, iceberg driving mechanism be- behind how we live and how we behave. And these things all come together in the particular moment that we live in 2019 in our culture, in in quite a specific way, quite a profound question in our moment for the reason I'm about to explain. Uh, Les Murray, the great Australian poet who died uh, last week, uh, used to describe Australia as roughly Christian. Great, very Les Murray sort of phrase, uh, a roughly Christian country. And by that, Les Murray meant that if you look at Australia from Federation or before Federation till, you know, quite recently, there was this big, blurry, kind of indescript, not very enthusiastically drawn, but kind of truish circle around this country that pointed at it and said, roughly Christian. That's the kind of place uh, that we Ah, and the challenge for evangelical Christians in a roughly Christian culture is to explain to a nominally Christian world uh, that you need to be born again. To say to people who say, yeah, I think I'm, I'm Christian, to say to that group of people, actually, yeah, but do you know the Lord? Have you, have you met the Lord personally? Let me put it this way. In, in Australia in 1901, Got to follow some statistics here. 96% of Australians said they were Christian. 1901, 96% ticked that on the census. They said they were Christian. In 2011, that was down to 62%. And then from 2011 to 2016, so five years, it goes from 62% to 52%. And so probably now, by the time it's measured again, we'll find that we're in a country where only a minority, just under 50%, identify as Christian. Uh, One of the questions you can ask is, where did all those people go? 
Because in 2011, if you put it concretely, in 2011 there were 950,000 people who then said, I'm Christian, and in 2016 said, I'm not. Now, what happened there? What, the funny thing is that the churches didn't actually decline in that time. So think about that. 950,000 people went missing and we didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> the, the reason is, and you probably worked this out, those guys weren't in our churches. They weren't people who were praising the Lord and, and devoting their lives to him and serving the poor in Jesus' name and evangelising their friends in the neighbourhood and in the workplace and that's what they were doing in 2011 and then by 2016 they thought, oh, forget it, I'm going to become an atheist. That's not what happened. But what happened is important. In 2011, 950,000 people said, what are we again, honey? I think we're Church of England or Presbyterian or something and that's what they tick and, and in a five-year period... 950,000 people were emboldened by the culture to say, do you know what, I'm just going to put nothing. That is an identity marker that mattered to some degree, you know, six, seven years ago, became something that through the, the wider kind of changes in the culture, they said, I don't feel like I have to put that anymore. I don't need that identity. I don't need to say that I am a Christian now, probably most of us in this room would look at that and say, actually, that wasn't a, necessarily a bad thing. That the culture of nominalism uh, is, is a kind of a breeding ground for hypocrisy and kind of weird social pressure that goes against the core uh, of the gospel. So I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that those guys, in some ways, maybe that's a more honest assessment of where we're at. But it does change our situation. Quite profoundly, it changes our situation from a situation where in 1959, Billy Graham could come and essentially say to Australia, you're not Christian enough. The thing that you say that you are, you aren't really because you must be born again. But that message doesn't take anymore because we who follow the Lord Jesus are no longer the intense form of what everyone thinks they are. We're no longer the group within that takes it a bit too seriously. We're no longer going to the churches that they would go to if they ever went to church. I've done this, uh, and you'll be pleased to know, I think I've got another slide here. I do all my, uh, all my own artwork until I'm available. Uh, if, uh, if I ever tank in uh, my current role, um, I, I, I do this. And I do it, I undercut my competitors. So... The situation we've gone through is that we were roughly Christian, the Les Murray phrase, and then there was this intense group of you know, born-again, sincerely devoted, you know, hardcore Christians who were within it, and we were saying to the society, hey, you might not have really understood the thing that you say that you are. And what's happened with us now is that we've been moved outside of that, and there's this wider secular consensus, and we stand to one side. And to be a Christian in Australia is no longer to be the intense form of everyone but to be something quite different. And, and in a way that we, in, in the use of the Australian we, are not really used to, due to our history, in a way that people from other backgrounds are very used to this, we now need to negotiate our identity where we are an alternative, not an intense group within it. That make sense? I think that's the situation that we find ourselves in now. And so I think this is an urgent conversation and I want us to think about it. I want to think about our identity in Christ. I want to think about our identity in a story 
in which we place ourselves and an, an alternative story to the story of our wider society. But first, I want to give you a brief history of you. Now, not personally there, I haven't trawled through your Facebook or asked your parents for baby photos or anything like that, but I want to think a little bit philosophically, but not not in a complicated way, about the way we construct the modern self, the way we put together who we are. And the way I want to do it is is for you to imagine you, but you 500 years ago. I think the way we can think about how we construct ourselves now is to think how would you have constructed yourself if you're exactly the same except it's 500 years before. Uh, my ancestors are from England and Northern Ireland so I'm going to put us there but I think this would work for a number of other contexts. How was your sense of self and your identity constructed 500 years ago? Let me paint a picture for you. You would have been born into a context where you were one of maybe five, eight, ten other children, a few of whom almost certainly would have died uh, before they'd reached their fifth birthday. You would have known with 99% accuracy what your career was going to be because it was shaped by two immovable things, what your parents did and what your gender was. And once you knew what your gender was and what your parents did, you knew what you were going to do with 99% accuracy. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. If your mum was a farmer's wife, that's what you were going to do. And so think about that. You almost never had the conversation, so what are you going to do when you grow up? It just, that conversation literally made no sense and no one ever talked about it. In fact, you only had the tiniest say in most of the major things that went into who you are because most of the things that went into who you are were decided for you. So again, that's a world where no one gave graduation speeches that said, you just follow your dream. No, no one in that world uh, said, listen, the main thing is that you do what you want to do. The main thing is that you discover who you are. That, that kind of conversation wasn't even on the table. And in fact, most of the wisdom that was available to you was not about how to generate choices and make good choices, Most of the wisdom and poetry and songs were about how to live within the the situation that was chosen for you. It was about how to cope with what was already true rather than how to navigate the choices that were in front of you. You lived in a world that was what they call an enchanted world. I don't mean that in the Disney sense. What I mean is a world that's shaped by spirits and demons and so on where you were very aware that there were non human minds in the world that could influence what you did and how your life went. Your life would have been very communal. You would have had next to no privacy, next to no time alone and you would have hardly known anyone. The people that you knew were the people that you would expect to have known for the rest of your life. So that was a world, the 500 years ago you, it was a world of intense, thick community almost stifling levels of community, a world of, of rich meaning. In fact, almost a surplus of meaning because everything meant something, every thunderstorm meant something, every, every action in the village meant something, every natural phenomenon meant something and you never wondered about whether your life had meaning or purpose because that had already been decided before you but it was a world of very little freedom. Who you were was largely shaped by decisions that had been made before you and your job was to live out the role to which you were assigned 
rather than to wonder or worry about what you should do with your life. Make sense? So come uh, forward to 2019. How do we put ourselves together now? Here's the alternative picture. You're probably from a family of one, two, maybe three siblings. It's possible uh, that you could get to your 20s, 30s or 40s uh, without ever having seen a dead body or lost someone close to you. The chances that you will do with your life what your parents did with their life are infinitesimally small and even if you did do what your parents did, what your parents did will look very different when you do it. Technology and society will have radically changed the job that they did even if by some freak show chance you do the same thing as them. And you probably won't because your parents especially if they're white, will have encouraged you to follow your dreams and do what you want to do. And in fact, your parents, again, especially if they're white, uh, will be considered good parents to the extent that they freed you up to, to not feel the burden of the family and to do what you want to do. Gender will be much less relevant to the choices that you've made. What your parents do will be much less relevant. And a million times you will have had the conversation. So what are you going to be when you grow up? because that's the thing that's on the table. Almost all the major decisions in your life were yours to make. Where you live, what you studied, uh, what you do, even in a weird degree, the extent to how you are in the world physically, what you eat and how you shape yourself, are all decisions that you made. And almost every book and film and song that you've ever heard or seen or read will be about encouraging you to follow your dreams. Will be about you, that's every Disney film, right? Every Disney film is about someone who is constrained by expectations around them and who finds a way through to discover who they are and what they wanted to be. We live in a world, to summarise, of very thin community where loneliness is a common experience for most people, at least some of the time. We live in a world of very little meaning, a world where we've had to decide who we are and what our lives mean and where we ascribe very little meaning to the natural world around us. But we live in a world of incredible freedom, unheard of, never before in the history of the human race, freak show levels of freedom. But freedom in a particular way, not in the ancient sense. The ancient sense of freedom was freedom was the freedom to be the thing that you are, whereas modern freedom is the freedom to choose what you want to be. And they're very different things. So what's it like to be a modern self? What does it feel like to be that person? Well, it's an interesting contrast with the 500 years ago version. So in our modern world, we're almost never afraid, at least never afraid of the natural world. In fact, I watch scary movies so I can feel afraid, uh, which people in the ancient world never would have done. Uh, I completely choose to a huge degree who I hang out with and where I live and I know what it means to be lonely and I might not feel as guilty or as scared of the judgement of God as I used to in the past but I will regularly have wondered whether my life has any meaning at all and will occasionally have wondered whether the universe has any meaning in it at all. That's the comparison that you can see up there. Uh, in 2015-19, uh, 
large family, death is present, strong, tight communities, what you did is conditioned by your gender and what your parents did, freedom of choice almost non-existent, the natural world is full of meaning, your common negative emotions are fear and guilt and your identity is chosen for you. Whereas come to us now, we live in small families, death is hidden from us, our communities are weak, loose and easily escapable. Uh, Our work is what we decide to do and is much less conditioned by gender. Our freedom of choice is almost paralysingly overwhelming. Uh, The natural world is absent of meaning and our common negative emotions are not so much guilt and fear but anxiety and a lack of purpose and our identity is chosen by us. Uh, The way philosophers and uh, others put this together is to say that the modern self, the way we think about our modern identity in the West is a condition called expressive individualism. We're individuals, we're shaped as individuals. Who we are is isolated from our families and our origins and our ancestors and so on and we are expressive in that. That the purpose of life, the authentic, the well-lived life is the life where you push forward and express who it is uh, that you are. Now, the important thing here and where this uh, lands in our discipleship and so on is there's all sorts of glorious freedoms about being around in 2019, but almost all of it's a trade-off. That to, to, to have that much freedom and to think of freedom in terms of choice is, is almost necessarily uh, to put aside community and to put aside meaning because you can't have community and you can't have meaning without constraint. You see, meaning, uh, community is to be committed to this group of people in this place at this time with this range. It's to constrain yourself and meaning a life of authentic Meaning, again, is a life of constraint where you look beyond yourself and find a higher purpose or value uh, or sense of calling and live according to that rather than endlessly generating the many meanings that expressive individualism creates. You see, the trade-off is that we trade-off, we get freedom and we lose community and meaning in the process and we experience a, a level of anxiety around who we are that is sometimes debilitating and crushing. And yet we hold on to it. Uh, You see this in the way we use our language of life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, when we use the phrase, get a life, uh, what do we mean by that? We don't mean that someone medically needs to get alive. Uh, When we say get a life, when someone says, oh, you've got to get a life or I feel like I don't have a life, what we mean is that we are constrained To not have a life is that you're working too much and if you're working too much, that means you don't get to do what you want to do. Or in a more ominous uh, situation, I've heard multiple people told, uh, even though you're kind of married and and so on, not to have children because if you have children, you don't have a life. Which means uh, children come as a constraint. Children oblige you to be in this place at this time and care for this human being. Uh, you think about this in a couple of weeks. You know, the, the, the New York skyline was lit up in pink earlier this year because late-term abortions were made available and they were in a way that they weren't before. And that's, that's to do with a particular vision about freedom as freedom of choice. It's not for nothing that it's called the pro-choice position. 
You see, we celebrate these things because we are so committed to the idea that the authentic self, the authentic identity is the one that we chose and the way we construct ourselves in the world. Let me come at this in uh, one other way. The way you can kind of uh, compare these two together uh, is that the ancient way of thinking was to have an ascribed identity. An ascribed identity is an identity that is given to you. It's an identity that you take from your ethnic group or your village or your country or your family or your faith. It is given to you, not generated by you. And we've moved uh, in the last 500 years to an achieved identity. Uh, an identity that we generate and that it is the product of what we have done and the way we have been in the world. I remember vividly uh, being confronted by this when I first went to Africa when I was 18, uh, way back in the 1990s. And, uh, and I would introduce myself in every village and every shantytown as, hi, my name's Rory and I am a student, to which the reply would be, my name is Bimbi and I am second born in my family. So the first one is about how I have constructed myself in the world and the second one is about the circumstances that were given to you. And there's an argument that in the last, uh, since World War II, and especially in the last kind of 10 years or so, we're moving perhaps beyond an ascribed to an achieved identity to what they now call a curated or a consumed identity. Because in the last five or 10 or so uh, years, uh, the chances that your job will be your job for the rest of your life have kind of fallen by the wayside. We'll have five or six careers and do different things and technology will change around us. And so what we've seen more recently in the younger uh, generations uh, are people who assert their identity not by what they've achieved so much as by the way they present on social media in a very carefully curated sense of choices about particular kinds of coffee and particular jackets and particular music eaten in, and food eaten in this particular way and sourced from this particular community. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who grew up in Brooklyn, uh, talks about this, that Brooklyn used to be dominated by Hasidic Jews uh, who had, the, you know, with the beards and the, uh, the distinctive clothes and the black jackets, and now it's dominated by hipsters, also with the uh, <laughs> black jackets and the uh, big beards and so on. And Jerry Seinfeld uh, says that Brooklyn has gone from a group of, one group of people that like to dress exactly the same to another group of people who like to dress exactly the same. But it's not quite the same. Because when Brooklyn was a Hasidic Jewish community, that was an ascribed identity. That was a community that was built and roles into which you walked, whereas Brooklyn is now full of people that have constructed themselves, that have put together in a very particular way who they are and how they are in the world. Well, that's how identity is constructed. I want to say something about the fact that identity is constructed in stories. You see, one of the advantages that the secular world has, that a secular culture has, is it sees itself as the, uh, the, the way of being in the world that doesn't need a story. That's kind of, ironically, one of the stories that sustains the modern West is that religious people need stories and fantasies and they need kind of before and afters and testimonies and so on, but to be secular is just to have the, the blinkers taken off and just to see the world as it is, to see it without story, and I hope you know that that's just not true. It's just not true generally because humans are story beings. The way we are in the world is always through story. We always understand who we are by where we've come from and where we're going and communities are sustained by stories. The 
Jewish community famously retells its story every year in the Passover. Who are we in a Jewish culture that's answered with the story? We are those who were rescued from Egypt and brought out of the land of slavery by the Lord our God and into our freedom. And the truth is that the secular West and secular Australia is not sustained by pure empirical science. Our, our, our identity is not constructed by just the way things are, but by a very particular story of where we've come from and where we're going. I think I've got it on the next uh, slide uh, coming this way. I think, next one along. Uh, this is the story that I think sustains many people in the modern West. It goes, every story needs an origin, it needs a problem, it needs a hero and it needs a new situation. That makes sense? The story that sustains us, you describe it as kind of a Gnostic story, uh, there is a true self that is inside me. That was the original condition. There was someone inside me that, who is the true me. But external forces have come about and made it impossible or constrained my ability to know who that true me really is. But the salvation comes where through something, through a discovery of who I am or through moving countries or escaping my family or escaping my faith or escaping my culture, I was able to assert myself and come out into the world and, and, and tell the world who the true me is. And that's my moment of salvation and so the story now is that we live in a moment where I'm working through it and I'm facing conflict but things are genuinely different because I've now discovered who the real me is. Can I kind of a bit like a testimony? Because that's what it is. It, it, is, it is the story, as I say, of every Disney and Pixar film, of every, uh, of every kind of torch uh, song and uh, an inspirational speech at a, uh, at a graduation ceremony. And it's very modern but also very ancient. It's essentially the Gnostic gospel. Because the Gnostics looked at the world and said, actually, actually the world out there is essentially evil and dark and constraining and society is constraining and nature is kind of feral and constraining and it was made by an evil God that doesn't really like us and it's all a bit wild. And so salvation is inward and salvation is invisible and so salvation is about who I am and, and, and liberating the inner person. You see, the reason we're up against something, remember that slide I showed you before about our situation, is that we are not in fact having a conversation between a religious and a secular Australia, but with two competing religious visions. We're not having a conversation between a, a storied religious hub that are kind of hanging on to this crazy story for who knows what reason, and then this kind of pristine secular world that is just facing brute reality. They're, they're, two, salvation, they're two versions of a kind of gospel of where we are from and what's gone wrong and what the solution is and where that will take us. Which is why these things are held so deeply. Which is why in an Israel Folau or other kinds of situations you find that you're coming up not against something practical but something deeply held. Something profoundly religious Something that is, that, is, that is shaping of who we are and how we are in the world. Which brings me to our identity in Christ. 
Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul says this. Listen to the words that Paul says and the way he frames it. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, The word baptism is littered through the New Testament. Uh, It's it's, it's a very common word. If you kind of do a Google search of the New Testament, you're going to find the word baptism everywhere. Interestingly, uh, it's not always or even not often referring to what we think of as Christian water baptism. So if I was trying to list them off uh, this afternoon, all the different ways baptism is used, there's the baptism of John, there's the baptism in the Holy Spirit, there's the baptism of Israel in the wilderness walking through the Red Sea, there's the baptism of Noah's flood. The word baptism is even used for what you do when you're washing kettles and pots and cups. Because, and this is kind of selling coal to Newcastle in a Baptist church, but the word baptism means immersion. That is, the word baptism uh, doesn't refer primarily to a Christian ritual but to the practice of, of having something completely flooded by, overwhelmed by, encompassed by something else and it is not for nothing that Christian salvation is described as baptism because we are baptised, listen to the language, baptised into Christ Jesus. We are immersed into Christ Jesus. We are overwhelmed by Christ Jesus. We are flooded with Christ Jesus. That's the point of the language that is used. We are given the name of Jesus and encompassed in him. In other words, baptism is a picture of the reality of what it is to be Christian and what it is to be Christian is to be enveloped into the identity and person of Jesus Christ. That's why uh, with baptism, I think we're on the same page here, I always recommend at our church that we use as much water as possible. (laughs) Not because uh, I think the water itself is kind of magical or it's the amount of water that does the trick, but because of the nature of what's being pictured, that we are being enveloped into the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. You see, being baptised into Christ is not that I'm acquiring Jesus as a good and services provider, that I've got a barista called Terence, my accountant's called Andrew, I've got a landlord called Laurel and I've got my life after death guy and he's called Jesus. <laughs> and there's me, the expressive individual, I need people to help me on my way and Jesus is the guy that helps me in those particular circumstances. That's exactly what baptism doesn't mean. Because in baptism you take the whole you and give all of it to Jesus. Now, I don't recommend this for church safe reasons and other, but you know in the ancient church they used to baptise people naked. Like, ew. So, absolutely (laughs) not recommending that, but the meaning behind it was important because as you went into the baptismal water... The whole point was that you leave it all behind. That if you were dressed posher than the other guy, if you were prettier or fancier or poorer or dirtier, that didn't matter. That got left behind because all of you was being given into the waters of baptism, meaning that all of you was being given 
to Christ Jesus. Or if I can put it another way, baptism is a picture of the New Testament's typical language for being a Christian, uh, which is to be in Christ, to be united to Christ. And the thing about being united to Christ is that it is an objective reality, an objective truth about who you are before it is a subjective truth about how you feel or how you behave. The way I illustrate this sometimes is to, is to get you to, I'm going to get you to do it right now, is to imagine a plane. So here's a plane, it's about to go off to Melbourne and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's boarding, it's at gate 42, whatever, and people are getting called to the plane and there's two people I want you to pay attention to. The first one is a uh, farmer, old guy from the southwest, never been on a plane before. The kids bought him a ticket, uh, they were like, Dad, you've got to go to Melbourne, you can go to the MCG and just be amazing and, and off you go and so they got together and bought him the ticket and there he is at the thing and all the family are with him and they're like, going, Dad, you're going to love this and he's terrified and he's like sweating bullets and thinking and he's looking at the plane and he's going, guys, is that it just, it's so counterintuitive to get into that big metal thing that looks really heavy and to think that's going to lift me up into the air and all and it's going to go through the clouds and so on and they say, Dad, it's going to be alright, it's going to be okay and then he gets, walks down the thing and gets onto the plane and sits down and then he's pressing the thing, talking to the, uh, to, talking to the host, he's saying, are you sure this is going to be okay? And when they're doing the, uh, the safety thing at the start, uh, he's like taking notes and they're <laughs> kind of reviewing it through the thing and then you do this and put it on the kid first and then I go, and he's just like, oh my goodness, what if I forget and the exits are here, here and here and they weren't clear enough about exactly where they were and uh, what difference is that even going to make? Anyway, and, and he's absolutely terrified. And then the other person I want you to pay attention to is the mining executive. And she goes every month to a meeting in Melbourne. She's on the board and that's where she's off to. And so she gets there, you know, 15 minutes to spare, no on, like, all hand luggage. She's kind of like, you know, gets on the plane, reading the paper, kind of annoyed that the, uh, the, the thing she was watching on her phone was interrupted by the overhead and she's heard this thing a million times. And sits down and just looks at her papers, has a little nap, orders her food and then away she goes. So the two questions are, who do you reckon had more faith? Definitely the woman, right? Complete trust in the plane. She's like, this is going to do it. I'm just, this, is, this plane's going to get me to Melbourne. I, I, I've got no, no concerns about that at all. And the, the, the man, very weak faith. Because he's constantly doubting, thinking, is this really going to happen? And just, he's kind of terrified about the whole situation. So who had more faith? There's a difference of faith. And the second question is, which one gets to Melbourne? <laughs> and I think we're in this ridiculous habit of thinking, oh, it's the one with more faith. Which is just not true. Because at the point of the question of who gets to Melbourne, it's nothing to do with how much faith, and it's everything to do with where your faith is. And whether your faith is as sheepish and doubt-ridden as the farmer who's on there for the first time or as confident and brisk as the mining executive, it matters not a sausage. Because you see, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is, it matters that they were in the plane. And if they were in the plane, then, it, then it's entirely dependent on whether the plane gets to Melbourne. If they're in it, that's where they end up. And you see, our identity in Jesus is just like that. That to be baptised into Christ Jesus, to be in Christ, 
is not a subjective thing that we generate ourselves. In one sense, you can't be more Christian. And in a very real sense, you can't be more loved by God because if you're in Christ, you're as loved as Christ is. If you are, if you are united to Christ, then everything he has has given, been given to you and you have been enveloped in him. And so the Christian life moves from the comprehension of who we are to the behaviour that follows from that. And so the challenge of the Christian life is not to say, look, if I just, if I just get my practices together and if I can just kind of overcome these things and do this and do that, then finally uh, you know, I can present my CV to Jesus and say, are we good now? Can I sign up? It's the opposite way around. It's by being united in and giving our identity over to the Lord Jesus that we find in him the resources and the strength to live the life that God has called us. I'll show you this last slide. I think this is the salvation story that we have been caught in. Uh, It's not that there's a true self inside of me that's just kind of waiting to get out. I think your inner self is probably like my inner self, just kind of a big bowl of crazy. The truth is that there is a role and identity that God has given to me. There is a purpose that someone bigger than me and transcendent and outside of me has for me. God has a purpose for me and an intention for me. And what has happened is not that external forces have pushed that aside, but that through human rebellion and Satan, we have lost our place with God and been alienated from him. And the heroic moment is not the moment where we discover who we really are, because really, who is that? but that we've been united to Christ and his death and resurrection and I now know that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus and has given me his spirit so that I can now enter into the the role and the identity that has been ascribed to me in Christ. And so I'm still working on it and facing difficulties and conflicts but things are materially different because by the work of God I've been united to Christ. You see, the deep and profound truth here is that we have a better story. We have a better story because it's a story that is not self-generated. It's an identity that is not as precarious as the identity of our achievements because our achievements can always fall apart and they're never as good as they could have been and they're never as good as the other guy and they are a fearful an anxiety-ridden way to build a life. And to have this kind of bespoke identity, this identity that's all about like how well-groomed that beard is or how long the jacket is or whether uh, the coffee has been sourced from the right place, there's always someone cooler than you. There's always someone whose Instagram self is just that bit shinier than yours and as we all know, our Instagram self is very different from our actual self. And what we have in the gospel and in the message of the Lord Jesus is an identity that is ascribed to us, that is given to us and an identity from which we can live and out of which we can grow and flourish in a secure identity that has been won for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to talking to you about that afterwards but that's the presentation and I think we've got time for a break and uh, then we'll come back for Q&A.
Yeah, thank you very much, Rory. It certainly was thought-provoking, wasn't it? It's just great to see the questions coming through, quite a range of questions coming, which is great. Uh, keep those coming and uh, we'll try and cover as many of those as we can in the Q&A section and we'll also be a, ro a roving mic for those that um, haven't got a phone or can't enter into the um, Slido system. But uh, we will kind of take a little bit of a break now. But before we do, I'd just like to pray. I realise at the start, I would have loved to have prayed at the start, but I completely forgot. So let's just, let's just, it's just wonderful though, just to know that the Lord is with us and uh, whether we pray or not, uh, it's not a big deal. But I suppose my heart always wants to ask the Lord and uh, to commit times that we have together to him. So just before we break then, let me just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your presence here among us. Lord, what a joy it is, Lord, opportunities like this to gather together, Lord, and to consider, Lord, matters that are of great significance and to look to you and ask that you would grant us wisdom, Lord, that you give us insight, Lord, that we would understand your heart, know your heart the more, Lord, and be able to work through significant issues in our lives and uh, just come to that position, Lord, in you, where we understand who we are, Lord, why we're here, Lord, and the great purposes and hope you have for each one of us. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and now as we break, we pray that you'd bless us, and with these questions, Lord, give us wisdom as we answer. We look to you in all of that. And so, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back to our Q&A time. I think there's a few still out in the foyer. If you could make your way back in, that'd be fantastic and we'll get underway. Got a wonderful range of questions here. It's just fantastic. You're going to struggle to get through them all, I think, tonight, but uh, we'll certainly have a go. Some of them um, we can group together, but we'll certainly try and cover those questions that uh, most of you have indicated you'd like to hear something on. Identity politics. Wow. Right at the top of the list uh, and many different questions around it. So let's begin by looking at some of the identity politics questions, perhaps, the, perhaps begin with the one a little bit further down that says, what is identity politics? And then we'll come back to the top and answer, should identity politics be a problem to Christians? If so, how should we as Christians tackle or reconcile the problem? So maybe you can kick us off, Rory. Cool. Uh, so uh, at one level, identity politics has been with us forever because it's you know like working class and middle class or... Uh, various competing uh, groups and so on. But the word, the, the label identity politics is used now particularly to refer to a breakdown that people perceive in the last uh, 10, 20 years or so from those larger blocks that had a kind of civic responsibility to each other and there were certain configurations of that into these much uh, smaller um, uh, groups that are gathered around particular identities, and so you saw that in big and violent ways in the in uh, in you know Kosovo in the 1990s and in different situations where ethnic groups uh, clashed and the and uh, political uh, cultures broke down, and then more recently in the West in those uh, those breakdowns into into very particular interest groups gathered around ethnic, religious, or gender identities or sexual identities that are uh, vying in the political process for space and, uh, and airing grievances and, and forwarding agendas. That's, I think that's what it means. Yeah. That's what it means, yep. yeah. Okay. 
So maybe we'll address the very top question there, 34 likes. So should identity politics be a problem to Christians? So I reckon with identity politics, you always, at one level you can't escape identity. There's no such thing as just this kind of generic human that's androgynous and comes out of nowhere and has no background or past or just is, is free in the world. So we've all got identities. I think the big question with identity politics is what, how does your identity... Uh, account for people uh, who don't share it. And I think that the, the test for any identity in, in the political realm is, is what sense does it make of those who aren't part of it. And I think that's where the Christian worldview has these very powerful resources in that the person who is completely opposed to me uh, in the political process or whatever, uh, I know from my identity and from our scriptures and so on that they are made in the image of God, that they are... Uh, loved by God and uh, p- purposed for him and so on. And so I think the big test, you can't get away from identity, but what you can do is to say, what does your identity say to those who don't share it? And I think identity politics is a problem for Christians if we adopt it in a chauvinistic way and, and use the word Christian where what we really mean is, you know, insert identity here, traditional Australians or particular uh, ethnic groups or whatever, and uh, a, a, proper, a properly formed Christian identity has powerful and generous things to say about those who aren't Christian and a powerful things to say about how we should be in the world. Yeah. So I didn't introduce Mick Stringer. Many of you know Mick Stringer, so it's great to have Mick up here. Uh, Mick's a theologian. He's head of our college here at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church and he's taught at... Um, you know, Vos and Tabor and other places. So, just great to have you up here too, Mick. Sorry about that. Cool. Gee, thanks. Now you're all waiting for me to say something profound, aren't you? <laughs> what we're talking about is actually how we perceive ourselves. And, uh, and right from the word go in the, in the biblical story is that human beings sought to uh, achieve autonomy for themselves. And so my right to perceive myself is the measure of what true freedom is. And, uh, and the reality is, though, that there's not just me. I am someone, as Rory started off with, with the list of uh, words to complete his sentence at the start, all this, every single word that I wrote down was relational in some sense. That there's not just me... And in fact, my personhood is not shaped by me and me alone. Rather, my personhood is shaped by all those people with whom I share the network of relationships into which I've been born. So, it's not just, a case, not just my identity is not just shaped by my own perception of myself. My identity is actually shaped with, by all of those people mm. with whom I share life. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. So, any comments on the, that first question there, Mick, about um, identity politics? Is it a problem to Christians? I think it's only a, only a problem for Christians insofar as it's a manifestation of our self-centredness. If we overcome that tendency towards self-centredness and we view ourselves as being lodged in that network of relationships then we will understand ourselves as being shaped and formed and contributing to that, that network. We don't stand alone by ourselves. Yeah. 
And so why do you think identity politics is so appealing to uh, people today, particularly young people? Might be a crack at it, worry. Well, I, I mean, um, what I'd say, I, th- I think it is very appealing to young people and you need to take seriously that it is appealing to young people. Uh, and you have to ask the question, why are people and why are young people finding identity policies and gathering around uh, identities, are some of which are very, potentially very toxic, uh, identities that are asserting a kind of a, a, a broken form of masculinity or asserting um, traditional um, and broken power structures. I think, the, I think it is a symptom of the fact that Western secular culture is failing very badly to generate community and to generate purpose because it's constructed in a way that it can't do that. And so then you have young people saying, well, I'm going to identify with this uh, particular subgroup and really uh, push my way into the world in that way. And it's no good. Uh, the secular world can't really help because it says, hey, you, you, want, more, you want more meaning? Have less meaning. And, and actually, I think we've got a really powerful opportunity there to say, actually, there is a way, there is a life of meaning and purpose, and it's not in asserting a, a, a tribal claim on a, on a culture, but in finding your, your meaning and purpose in God and in his purposes for you. So I think it, it's, a very, um, it's a very telling feature of the failure of modern secularism to give meaning and purpose to young people. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's good. Now, there's a number of other questions here that kind of link... There's, well, there's theological questions, but there's also questions around assurance, and assurance of faith that rated quite highly. Um, at what point are we no longer Christian? And why do... I think the, que- the other question in there was to do with, you know, why do we call nominal Christians Christians uh, and continuing to do that? That was the other question in there, I think. I think there's two ways in which we can answer that question. At what point are we no longer Christian? Uh, Rory alluded to that during his presentation that we can answer in the first instance on behalf of our nation. It's quite clear that Australia is no longer a Christian nation purely and simply from a statistical point of view. Um, the more difficult question though is the question, this is the theological question about Uh, is it possible for a person to lose their salvation? And that's a much more vexed question. Is that, what do you think, Rory, is that what the question's actually driving at? Uh, Is it? Then, well, then it's all yours. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, thanks. That's that's going to uh, give the game away a bit, isn't it? Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Uh, That debate's been raging in Christian circles for about 2,000 years and I don't know that we're any closer to an answer to that. On the one hand, there are people who who draw uh, their argument from verses in Scripture which seemingly suggest that it is possible for someone to lose their salvation Um, by practices of unbelief, for example. But there are other people, on the other hand, who who choose other verses which seemingly suggest that it is not possible for someone to lose their salvation. Uh, I could give my personal opinion, (laughs) Um, but all that will do will separate the audience into those one camp or those of the other camp. I... 
my, my personal opinion is that salvation is something which belongs to my God. He is the one who calls people to himself. He is the one who equips people to respond to that. He is the one who is the author and finisher of the whole process of salvation. Uh, my part in that is simply to say, thank you, Father. Uh, and so if there was something that I could do to turn that away or something that uh, someone else could do that could rob me of that, that would mean that either I or that someone else has equal authority to the Lord. Mm. Rory, do you want to well, add to that? It turns out that we agree, so I wouldn't have to be fearful of. So, <laughs> uh, no, so I, I think that's right. So I think that, that, that would certainly be my um, understanding and emphasis, and, and I think that's, theologically, that's where I'd, I'd end up in thinking that... that, that the question of salvation is not how, not fundamentally how firm my grasp is on Christ, but how firm his grasp is on me. And so, I, you know, so I think within that, I do want to say that the, uh, I, I, uh, the language of once saved, always saved, if it gives the impression that you're bulletproof and you go straight from here to selling meth and like just going nuts and never trusting God, it's like saying, uh, can you fly to Melbourne and not be on the plane? And like... No, you're like you'd be on the plane, and I think that the, the the way the Lord keeps us with Him is not so. Imagine that we're sheep, right? Which is a biblical metaphor, and there's a there's a cliff on the edge, and if you went over that cliff, there's a genuine precipice into which you could fall, and the question is, how does the Lord keep those that He has called away from the cliff? It's not by a fence. So it's not that you can run as hard at that and that as you like and there's this fence that just keeps knocking you back. It's by the word of the shepherd calling you back and saying, listen to the voice of the shepherd. And his sheep will hear his voice, so that's my Calvinism, but his sheep hear. His sheep don't stop listening and think, oh, this is a completely safe environment. There is an actual precipice. I think that's where the, the warning passages in the Bible aren't made up crazy talk if you, there's not a fence, what there is is the voice of the shepherd. So you want to keep saying, be confident in the Lord and keep listening to his voice. Yeah. At the risk of confusing the matter further, um, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me say there is a difference between academic theology and pastoral theology. The fact that the question is, has risen its head in the first instance is an indication that what we observe in the real world sometimes doesn't align with what our logic or our thoughts tell us. And so that presents a pastoral problem. And, uh, and as leaders within Christian churches, we need to find ways to deal with those pastoral problems. The reality of the fact is that we live in a sinful world and not everything is going to fall into a pattern that we think it should follow. And, uh, and if we're going to walk with people through life, that's what we're going to find every single day. Mm. And we have to find some way to speak about these matters in a way that makes sense, that uh, people can receive pastorally and is at the same time remaining consistent with the scripture. Mm. I think in our culture too, this whole question around you know, a Christendom and nominal Christianity, uh, the stats that uh, Rory showed, I think our own experience in the culture is actually showing that it's not as popular to be a Christian now as what it was 
some years ago, so most definitely there's this need for... There's a, there's a clear distinction often mm. now in the culture between Christians and non-Christians that perhaps wasn't there in the nominal Christian world that we were in some years ago, mm. which is good and bad. I mean, it's good in the sense that the light shines and that we need to really look to the Lord and we can be distinctive, but we're not going to get a seat at the table by saying that we're a Christian like we would have got once before in, in the culture. Perhaps let's move on to kind of the bigger questions around identity um, and there's one here around sexuality. Um, is sexual identity oversized in our culture? If so, why? And is its power something we should be wary of? It's a good question. Uh, yeah, well, yes, I, th- I think ab- that's one of the big changes that we've seen in, in the last little while is that sexual identity has, has moved to the front. Even the word sexuality is, is a reasonably relatively new word and the idea that you would tether who you are toward your tether that against your sexuality is a relatively new uh, phenomenon and that's really exploded in the last uh, uh, especially in the last decade and since the 1960s in different ways and so I think it is that's an important feature Tim Keller the uh, pastor in New York gives an illustration that because I think the constant is that uh, there were people of uh, minority sexual orientations right throughout history. As far as we can work out, that's just that's a constant that 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 person and of those ori- orientations have existed in different times. So what has changed is not the constant, uh, but the the way the culture relates to that, the way what it approves and what it forbids and so on, and uh, th- that's what has generated this kind of. Uh, configuration around sexuality as a source of identity. Now, I think the big answer to that is to find our identity in the Lord Jesus and um, to to tether who we are to him and who he's made us and so on. But I don't want to give the impression that that's this silver bullet, easily done, uh, straightforward thing because it, it's, it, it's not. That, that's a, it's a powerful... Um, a powerful internal force, our, our sexuality, um, and now met with a powerful external force in a culture that wants to promote and forbid uh, different things. And so that's the, the. I'm so glad we had the Q and A because I want to say that, that that identity in Christ, for say for someone, if you're of a same sex attraction, uh, that's that is a, you know, that is a as true like the two people on the plane it's as true for you as it is for anyone but that presents real that's a real challenge to live that out and i don't want to pretend that that's an easily an easily one thing and that's why we need uh, christian communities and uh where a life lived faithfully to jesus can be lived without being lonely and can be lived in uh in a in a, in a situation where we are affirming each other and pushing one another on uh in in the lord yeah it's good any comments, Mick, on sexuality? I think it's about time. You had some comments in there. So well, <laughs> we haven't got much time. <laughs> if, I, I think the, uh, the way that I would answer the question is by, uh, by addressing it with another question. Is our, is our gaze inward or is our gaze outward? Mm. Is my identity, the, the way that I perceive myself, 
something that accrues to me by what's coming into me, into my personhood, or something that's going out of my personhood. What do I mean by that? I mean by, is it shaped by the people with whom I live my life and the people to whom I give my life away and my time and my energy and my interests or am I simply receiving from others, taking in from others and allowing that to shape actually who I am? Am I inward focused or am I outward focused? That's good. Now these, uh, these questions are going up and down the order rather quickly. Perhaps this is a good one for us to address I think. How do we as Christians have a constructive conversation with people who have a secular salvation story and discuss identity issues with them? I, I think part of the work is part of the work in our culture is because uh, the secular story in our culture gets to be the non-story. It gets to be the taken for granted. This is what the world looks like when you get rid of fantasy and so on. So I think I think part of it is to um, is to encourage people to see uh, their story as a story, to notice that there is this structure of an original condition, a, uh, you know, a dilemma, a hero and, and a resolution, um, because I think otherwise people end up living in this uh, kind of self-perpetuating uh, um, idea that this is just the taken-for-granted way um, way that the world is, and especially if you if you share my conviction that I think that that salvation story will inevitably leave people short. I think it, it's not a it's not a big enough story to encompass a human life and to deal with the complexities of, of life that's lived and and so on. So I think I'd want to have a uh, like obviously not an antagonistic story of saying you know my story is better than your story and um, may the best story win or whatever. Um, but I, th- I think part of it is to have that kind of conversation where where you can um, you can talk at that that level. I notice, in terms of the Western structure of culture, in our culture, for good and bad, and um, I, I think it's both um, uh, questions of faith, religion, ultimate meaning. We've uh, we think of those as private and personal, whereas questions of politics and economics are public. And so you know, if you're at work, you can. If you say, oh, um, can I just pray for you or, or whatever, you can get away with it. It feels a bit weird. It feels like you've said the wrong thing in the wrong place and there's something about that and that's because our culture really separates those things. But if you go to someone's home, you can say, oh, what, tell, me, tell me about you and, what you and we think about homes as these places where you're allowed to talk about ultimate meaning and significance and, and so on. So that would be my other kind of tip, I think, is to acknowledge that that's a truth in our culture, whether it's a good truth or a bad truth, that is the truth, um, that people feel uh, happier to talk about these things in those familial environments. And uh, I think there are points where you can actually get real traction with people, especially if you're willing to be vulnerable and, um, and share your story. Yeah, that's good. I think we should just move on. There's a question here that I think we need to answer. It's a bit down, further down the list, but it says, what exactly is... A Christian identity. I think Rory's done a, a admirable job of defining that for us uh, during his presentation. Let me let me answer that by telling you a story. Uh, those those of you who know Pam and I know that uh, a number of years ago we were farmers. We both come from farming families, and we lived in Esperance for a number of years, and uh, and we were running a farm down there. Uh, we were there at a time when 
um, the economic climate was not good for farming families. And a lot of people uh, who we knew on farms actually lost their farms because their, their debt load was too high, their equity had slipped and they, they lost their farms to um, large banks, basically. Uh, that was a terrible time for a lot of my friends uh, and it was a terrible time for them because what happened is that they not only lost their livelihood but for a lot of the men with whom I knew and lived, they lost their identity because they had shaped their identity around something that they did rather than who they were. Mm. And so when they lost their farm, not only did they lose their source of income and their place of residence and their, and their assets and all of that, but they actually lost their identity. And I'm sad to say that there were some suicides on the back of that because uh, some of these men were completely bereft of any shape, form of identity, so much so that they, that they chose to end their own lives because effectively they perceived themselves of, as being of no value because they had ceased to do and it was the doing which actually shaped their identity. Mm. They didn't have the ability to reinvent their identity. I think with Christian identity, it's very important to go back to the creational account and to understand or to read really the story in the beginning in the first 11 chapters of Genesis where we see that we as human persons are made in the image of God and therefore to know who we are, we need to know God and who he is. And so if we begin there in the Christian account, where we, in the um, Genesis account, we begin to start seeing our origins, our initial identity, our beginnings, our identity in God. And uh, we see that there was a problem, things didn't go right. Um, and of course, without really understanding those first 11 chapters, we, why has Christ come? Why do we now have an identity in Christ? Well, because of what happened and the salvation story as it's worked out. So I think our identity in Christ um, is really relates back to the very beginning of the story uh, that we are in fact children of God and uh, created in the image of God and from that uh, point, from that foundation, um, our Christian identity is in our relationship with God, that we're relational beings. God essentially is a relational being. And we're made in that image to relate and to know him. And therefore our identity really um, is shaped in us as we relate to him who made us. And it's an amazing thing really to be made in the image of God. An incredible thing to be a human being and to have an identity in Christ. But it's a big question and it's one that, um, I mean, it's, it's such a history there to talk about. We haven't got time. But uh, it's certainly very interesting. Now... What we should be doing probably is making sure that we are covering some of the ones that are appearing back at the top. So what would you say to people struggling to find their identity in Christ? How do we get rid of our false ones that we've created ourselves? Hmm. Uh, that's a great phrasing of the question because I think the... Uh, I think you, you need to think about your objective relationship with Jesus, that it's, it goes from who, who he has identified us and who he's made us and our subjective 
uh, knowledge of that, like if you think of the two people on the plane, uh, the, the, the woman had a, had a high subjective knowledge that the plane was going to go to Melbourne, the guy had a low subjective knowledge, but they were both in the same plane, therefore they were going to get there. But I think part of the Christian life and part of Christian formation is to grow into a greater appreciation of who we are in Christ. And that's not, that's not generating something that isn't true, but it's moving into something that is true. And that happens all the time. Like, you know, when you, if you get married, you really are married. Um, but it can, it can take time and practice to enter into, uh, you know, the fullness of that marriage and so on. And so I think, that's, I, I think really what we're doing when we come to church on Sundays is we're telling ourselves that story again. And that's what we're doing in our Bible study groups and that's what we're doing in uh, a practice of daily prayer and so on, uh, is where we're forming ourselves so that what is actually true of us in Christ becomes increasingly true of our experience of Christ and, and our way of uh, being in the world. So, so that, that's where there is this... There is work to be done. It's not work that will make God love you more or that will make you more, uh, more in Christ than the next person, but it is work that will allow us to delight in and own our identity in Christ. And I think that the audit that we need to take on our lives is to think that uh, we, we will be what we do habitually. So you think about, you think about your life that you think, if, if, if in every morning I wake up and the first thing I do is check Facebook and Facebook is about seeing if people liked, think about that word, that if people liked what I said, that is if they approved what I said and then I go and then I check my emails and find out what the demands of the world are on me and then I rush to the thing and then I go to bed having binged on Netflix and so on. I think what plus five years, what per, how am I forming myself? What, what is that person? That person is anxious desperate for the approval of others, uh, you know, um, kind of like a, a dog at a dog whistler's convention, just looking around for everyone. And, <laughs> and, and because I am in Christ and I'm loved by the Father and I'm enveloped in him, I don't want to do, I don't want to adopt the practices that are going to take me further away from that reality. So I want to be reading scriptures and meeting with God's people and singing songs about Jesus and to Jesus and so on, not because they're getting me closer to God, but because they're allowing me to more fully embrace the truth that's already true. Yeah, That's good. How about this interesting question here? How does our identity in Christ compare between now and 400 years ago? That's okay. a great question, yeah. yeah. Do you want to start with that one, Vic? My goodness. <laughs> Let me, uh, let me answer that in part by referring to something that we've done here at Mount Pleasant Baptist over the uh, past couple of months. In February and March we had a preaching series that looked at the seven letters to the seven churches in, at, at the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And when we come to the end of that preaching series in the ministry team leaders meeting we did a review of what we thought uh, happened in that uh, preaching series and what the most important things came out of uh, out of that preaching series um, and my answer to that particular question was three things the first thing that uh, that I think took place in those letters what the Lord Jesus is saying to to his church is that firstly that we are known in each of those seven letters 
the, the angel that directs to the, the letter to the church quite clearly says to all of the believers in each one of those churches that we are known. The second thing is that we are loved. And the third thing is that we are called. By called we mean that you are called to change where you are, called to change some of your behaviour, called for a purpose, called on towards a destiny and all of those things. I think that was the, um, that was the key message to come out of that preaching series for us and I think that, that informs our identity in Christ. If we hold on to those things that God knows us, God knows you and knows me, knows where we are, he loves us, he's provided for us and he's called us forward into something that helps me shape my identity. So maybe we we'll move just a couple more questions and we'll finish. Um, what is my response of love when people around me are not respectful of the Lord? So, well, that's a great question and I think you, uh, it's great, uh, again, well phrased because you want to think uh, what's my response of love that uh, if people around you are kind of, I guess, like blaspheming or, or disrespecting um, the Lord in your presence or, or your faith or, or, or Christians or whatever, um, you know, you're guided by the fact that uh, that person is made in the image of God, that they are made by God and for God and that... Uh, the, it's always good to assume incompetency above conspiracy, um, that they may well not realise that they're offending you or um, you know, to, to err on all those kind of um, generous judgments and so on. But I do think you do have, especially in an ongoing personal relationship, uh, the opportunity to communicate something of your heart and how that's experienced by you in a way that might be completely news to them. And so um, I do think there is, I, I, I can think of ways and have seen ways where um, we're raising those things and saying, actually, do you know what, given who I think the Lord is and what I think the Lord's done, that's why I find that, that kind of language hard. Maybe something like that. If someone's not respectful of the position that I hold, um, if I treat them with disrespect, that's not going to aid the discussion, is it? Hmm. If, uh, if I allow someone else to hold a different opinion to what I hold uh, and show them respect, show them courtesy, show them uh, dignity in that, um, that doesn't mean to say that I have to agree with them. Uh, we, have, we are free to disagree but we should be able to still have respect for another person's opinion um, and in that way I think is, is the more uh, honourable way and so that we might lead someone through a demonstration of love into what we know is the truth. No, I think that's good. Well, there's many more questions here, but uh, we're running out of time, so um, I might leave it there unless there's any last comments either of you would like to make. No. Can I tell a story to end? Yep. <laughs> a couple of years ago, Pam and I went down to Esperance to, to a funeral of a young man that we knew really well. This young man died when he was 42 years old and um, he was a very close friend of Pam and I when we were in Esperance. And uh, we'd been to the church for the funeral service and we went out to the cemetery uh, for the burial and the committal 
and afterwards we just stayed for a little while longer after most of the rest of the people had gone. And as we walked our way back through to uh, where we'd parked our car, we took the time to just pause and read some of the headstones on some of the graves that were there. And the thing that struck me on the way back to the car was that the descriptions that were written on, the, on those headstones almost invariably included some sort of reference to the relational structure in which that particular person belonged. There was no mention about property, there was no mention about assets, there was no mention about great achievements that the person had reached in their lives. It all had to do with who the family members were, who the husband was, who the wife was, who the sons were, the daughters were, who the survivors were, all of those sort of things. And it really struck me that as human beings we exist in that relational network. That's where we're meant to be and those headstone epitaphs, if you like, told the story of that person's life in the way that they connected to other people that were important to them. That's, that's where I think we find our identity, in the family where God has placed us. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, Rory and uh, Mick. Let's put our hands together and thank Rory again. And Mick, and let me just uh, close in prayer. Lord, we are just thankful again for this opportunity tonight to be together. And Lord, for this great reality that our identity is in you, we are sons and daughters of the living God. We're in the family of God and that transforming relationship of knowing you transforms our lives as we relate to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. And Lord, we just long to know you the more in our hearts and to be shaped more by you. Lord, thank you that you created us, Lord, that we might be indwelt by you. Lord, that your Holy Spirit might live in us. Lord, and that we might know you and love you and worship you and be, Lord, your people, your representatives in the earth. Lord, representing you. Lord, being like you. Lord, reflecting your character in the things that we do. Lord, you have created us to be amazing people. Lord, more than we know, just a little lower than God, the psalmist says. And so, Lord, we... Uh, just thankful, Lord, for who we are. We pray for one another, Lord, that we might just go on continuing to discover our identity in you, our identity in Christ. Lord, who you are, Lord, and your great love for us. You've made us to be lovers. And so, Lord, may your love dwell richly in all our hearts. And may, Lord, we as your people be a great blessing in this city. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. And amen.